0: Good to be overwhelmed by God. That's one of my go-to songs for a while, so I appreciate that uh, very much. Most of us are familiar with the stories that turn on one extraordinary character demonstrating his or her identity by doing something unique that only he or she is capable of doing. Maybe it's by being divergent. Maybe it's by surviving the normally killing curse of Lord Voldemort. Or more classically, I think of the, the legends of King Arthur and the story of the sword and the stone. For those who, who don't know it, the, there was a sword placed in a stone, and the, what it was written on it is that whoever can draw this forth is the rightful king of England and will be the king of England. Throughout the land, mighty lords and knights had come and done their best to try and take that sword out of that stone because they wanted to be the king, and they'd all failed. But one day, in a time of need, the boy Arthur saw a sword in the stone, grabbed it, pulled it out because he needed it. He had no idea what he had done, but in that instant, he was changed and recognized. He was no longer the lesser adopted son of a minor knight, but was, in fact, the rightful king of England. His fate was changed instantly because he had revealed his extraordinary identity by doing an extraordinary deed. Because you see, just like fingerprints and DNA would uniquely identify an ordinary person such as myself, the extraordinary powers uniquely identify their extraordinary possessors. They validate them to all the witnesses. They dispel any doubts about who they are. And while these stories that I mentioned, Harry Potter, King Arthur, and so forth, are, are not true... We're going to continue this week looking at some stories from the book of Mark that are true, in which one extraordinary person, Jesus of Nazareth, demonstrates who he is uniquely by doing extraordinary things. Last week, we saw him begin to introduce himself to the common people of Israel by doing an extraordinary thing in the way that he taught and in the way that he demonstrated power over demons. This week, we're going to look at another story, and as I said, the exhilarating thing is that these stories are true, verified by many witnesses, with many opportunities for those who are there to contradict, and they've been carefully preserved for centuries, and they show us that Jesus is indeed extraordinary. So last week, we talked about that, that first recorded public teaching in the synagogue, and, and we saw how amazed everyone was. At his power over demonic forces and about the authoritative way he taught. And I'm hoping that everybody who was here last week caught at least a little bit of that amazement about our Lord and Savior, Jesus, the Holy One of God. We rejoiced in his power over the evil forces that could oppose us, and we saw that he truly has the authority to speak Scripture and be obeyed. Well, shortly after that display of authority, he left Capernaum, and started going to to other towns, because his mission was not to do miracles in one town. It was to preach the good news in many towns. And so he went throughout that region doing exactly what he had done in that story, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. And after touring throughout Galilee, he returns to Capernaum. And that's where today's passage picks up. So if you would, turn with me to Mark chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1. I'll have it up on the screen, but there's a 50-50 chance I'll forget to advance the slide to get to the whole text. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered there, so there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Now I want to highlight here Real quick, what was it he was doing? He, he was preaching. He'd come back from a road trip, very busy times. He gets home, the crowd descends on his house, and he starts preaching the word. Because this is his most important mission at this point in his ministry. He says as much in Mark one thirty eight, where he says, Let us go on to the next towns, that I might preach there also, for that is why I came out. So every miraculous thing that he does at this point in his ministry is really for the purpose of demonstrating his identity, empowering his preaching, and ultimately proving that what he preaches is the truth. Now, I I can't help but mention one other thing about what we've read so far, which is, it's this thing has no real theological significance, but it's always like interested me every time I've heard this passage. I always think, and I mean this is trivial. I'm probably the only one who thinks this. I'm like. How does the homeowner feel about what happens in this story where the roof gets torn up and, like, you have this mob scene in your house? Well, I know it has no real significance, but I'm interested that I was reading here that while the translations vary a little bit at the end of the first verse, it says that Jesus was at home. So in all likelihood, he probably was at least a resident of this home that got trashed. Again, no significance, but I think it's interesting that he's so free with his home because preaching is such a dominating uh, purpose for his being there. So let's pick up again in the passage, starting in verse 3. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Now, I want to pause here and just note two things about the exchange so far. First, as we're going to discuss in greater detail later, the scribes are right when they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? But they're not right in the way that they intended, and we'll explore this more later. But the second thing I want to note, because I think it's important as to how we understand this passage, and, and it supports the main point of the passage, is, is that we're on a common page when it says, when it says that Jesus perceived in his spirit, right? Right? He's reading their minds. They're not speaking out loud. This passage is very clear. They don't say it out loud. Instead, they're questioning in their hearts, and he understands their hearts. He reads their hearts, and he responds to them directly. Again, I think this will support the main point of this passage, so I wanted to take a moment to notice it. And I advanced the slide, so we're on the winning side of the 50-50 so we're going to pick up with the conclusion of the, the passage, starting in verse 9. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed. And went out before them all, so that they were all Amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never, saw, we, sorry, we never saw anything like this. Well, one thing I've learned so far in this short study of Mark is that the Greeks had a lot of words to express amazement. The word for amazed today is different from the word from last week's passage. You might recall that last week's passage, the word amaze, the translator is amaze in English, Bore with it the notion of being shocked. The people were shocked by what they saw. This word has a different connotation. It carries with it the notion of being out of your mind with amazement. That you are our word ecstasy comes from this word. You are in an ecstatic state. You are not able to process the events around you. The same word is translated in chapter three by when. An, His family is concerned for Jesus, and they say, he's out of his mind. It's the same word. So there's a very strong connotation. This is not just amazement. This is not just shock. They are literally almost out of their minds, overwhelmed by what they've just seen. And I could only hope that at some point, we too can get a little bit of that excitement about Jesus, because... We've seen them move from a state of astonishment to a state of shock to a state of overwhelmed, out of their minds in his presence. Now, before we go into this passage more deeply, I want to recognize and acknowledge that I I know that I am treading on very dangerous ground with this passage. Because it has to be one of the top five most preached passages in the Bible. You've probably all heard this five, ten times by other preachers who are better than me. And you've heard it undoubtedly preached about faith and about friends and about forgiveness and about determination and about healing. And those are all true and excellent and valid points from this wonderful passage. It's a very rich passage. There's a lot of truth to be taken out of this passage. But I'm going to argue that those are not any of them the central point of the passage. The most important thing that we need to take away from this passage is about Jesus' identity. Because fundamentally, this passage is about identity. It's about proving who Jesus is, and that's what I want to talk about today, so that we properly understand this story the way the people in first century Capernaum understood this story. And so that we see Jesus of Nazareth the way they saw Jesus at Nazareth when they were amazed out of their minds. And of course, that's one of my goals for this series, right? That we would delight in him, that we would catch a bit of that amazement experienced by those who first saw Jesus in action. Now, I'm going to realize that I've made a somewhat bold claim when I say that this passage is fundamentally about identity rather than about any of the several other very valid truths that are in this passage. So what ground am I standing on? Well, I'm not, I will say that it is not based on some deep spiritual insight or uh, a special message or anything like this. I don't have secret knowledge. But when you deal with a complex passage like this, it's, has a lot of points about it that are all true. And you're trying to figure out which ones are the ones that are the reason the Holy Spirit said to the author, you need to put this here and tell this story to these people who will read it for thousands of years. You have to to use some tools and you have to use some judgment. You have to follow some principles to try and say, why is this story here and why is it so important? One of the ways that you can help sort out a passage like this to figure out what the main point of it is, is to look at the dialogue. What do the people actually say? Because uh, while what they do is important fairly universally through the Gospels, what they say, and in particular what Jesus says, is most important if you want to understand why is the story here. What are we supposed to take out of it first and foremost before we take anything else out? And so I'd like to take a look again at this passage, but this time with only the dialogue visible. Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. The scribes say, Why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus says, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise up, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise pick up your bed, and go home. And the people say, we never saw anything like this. Does that help clarify the main point of the passage? Because this dialogue is almost entirely about forgiveness of sins. But the scribes are right in the dialogue when they say only God can forgive sins. And so ultimately, this passage is a question of identity. Is Jesus God? Because if not, then he can't forgive sins. Psalm 32.5 says, I said I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Well, Isaiah 43.25 says, "I I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Because sin is fundamentally an offense against God, only God can forgive sins. So the scribes are right to ask, who can forgive sins but God alone? But they're also assuming he's blaspheming because they assume that Jesus is not God. You can't really blame them for that. Every other person that they've met in their life has not been God. But as we saw last week, and as we see again in this passage... Jesus is not like anyone they've ever met before. Jesus says that to prove he can forgive sins, he's going to heal the paralytic and does exactly that. Was this a conclusive proof for them? Certainly seems to have been, because rather than continuing to indignantly view him as a blasphemer, the passage records that they were all amazed. Amazed and glorified God. The mood in the room has changed completely from hostility. It's gone. And we're left with a group of people who are out of their minds with amazement. So if we know that he can forgive sins, and if only God can forgive sins, then Jesus has conclusively demonstrated to these people that he is God. And that is the most important message to anyone who was there watching and anyone who's reading the message today. It's the most important message for what we need to talk about today. It's not that he did a fascinating or impressive physical miracle 2,000 years ago to a paralytic. It's that he demonstrated he was Emmanuel, God with us, in the flesh, standing in their midst, knowing their hearts, reading their minds, and preaching the word. Like those early witnesses, we need to recognize Jesus of Nazareth for who he is not just a wise teacher, because if he was that, he'd also be a blasphemer, and that's not particularly wise, not a specially empowered person who can work miracles, because if he was that, he wouldn't be able to forgive sins on behalf of God. We must embrace him and recognize him as God himself, come to earth to teach and to preach and to demonstrate his divinity through a carefully selected set of miracles. So having settled the most important issue of this passage, that Jesus is God in the flesh, there are two more truths that I think we need to embrace today. The first is to recognize that Jesus can bring about physical healing. Throughout the gospel, Jesus heals countless people. We don't know the exact number, but it has to be in the hundreds or thousands because we read stories that include details like, the whole town was there for healing, and he healed them all over and over again. And ever since, throughout the history of the church, we've heard ample evidence of miraculous healings in the name of Jesus. They, they go on today. We, we hear about them, testimonies today, in Ark Nation, and even more so on the missionary frontier. And I know there are undoubtedly some stories of miraculous healing in our own lives, and so it is right and good for us to pray fervently and persistently for physical healing, even in the face of what is described as an impossible case, because, as we can see, Jesus can provide physical healing. But at the same time, we have to recognize that physical healing is not Jesus' primary mission. In Mark 1, and 38, the people of Capernaum are looking for Jesus. They want him to stay so they can heal more people. They still have people who are sick, who are demon-possessed. But Jesus leaves them the way they are because he says, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. See, while physical healing is good, Jesus makes it clear that he is first and foremost here to provide spiritual healing. It's a simple logic, a matter of math. Physical healing, as desperate as we might want it, it's only going to last for a certain number of years. But spiritual healing is forever. Jesus' perspective is always on the eternal. It is always on what is ultimately best for us, on what ultimately matters to us. That's the state of our spiritual health and our eternal destination. So while Jesus lovingly and generously provides physical healing anytime he can to the point of, of physical and emotional exhaustion. That's, that's the thing that triggered his family to say he's out of his mind. It's also clear that physical healing serves the purpose of demonstrating and opening people's minds and hearts to the spiritual healing that only he can provide. Jesus displays that priority in the today's passage, doesn't he? Because what's he do to the paralytic first? Does he provide physical healing? Did he he heal the paralytic first? Was that the first thing he offered him up? No. No. He says, your sins are forgiven. And you know that's not why they came. Those guys did not battle their way through the crowd, climb the outside steps, tear up the roof of somebody else's house, and drop their body through the roof to get... Forgiveness of sins, that's not why they're there, right? They came for physical healing because as, as much of a challenge as paralysis is in today's world for the person who suffers from paralysis and for the caregivers, it was a greater burden then because there was no way this person could work. There was no way they could provide for their family. If there were no other providers, their family would, would probably starve or be, at least be reduced to begging. There were no government insurance programs, disability programs. There were no government services for the disabled. And there wasn't much charity either. Because it was generally believed if you had a serious physical problem, it was because either you sinned or your parents sinned, and to help you would be interfering with God's will. So this paralytic and his remarkable friends had come to Jesus that day desperate to end years of pain and suffering and isolation and invisibility and starvation and misery and poverty and despair because they know, they know that Jesus can make it all right. And so they battle their way into the house. And then what does he do? Forgives the man's sins. Jesus knows their hearts. He's not oblivious. He's not, a, he's not a fool. He knows why they're there. We can see in this passage, he reads people's hearts. That's another way we know that he demonstrates he's God. He knows how badly they want their friend to be healed physically. And you know he cares about that man's pain. But he also knows that the pain of this life is temporary. Well, the pain of eternal separation from God is forever. And so he begins by forgiving the man's sins. So even as we turn our physical pain and our illnesses over to God through faithful and fervent prayer, confident that Jesus has demonstrated his power to provide physical healing, we must also understand that such healing is not always God's will. Paul himself learned that lesson when he took his thorn in the flesh to God in prayer and petition several times, only to be told, you're not going to receive physical healing. But that shouldn't discourage us from from taking our suffering to the Lord in faith and in the strong name of Jesus. But it does point us to the the other and the more important truth that we must embrace from this passage. And that is that Jesus Christ, as God in the flesh, has the power to forgive sins. While today's passage was most fundamentally about Jesus' identity, demonstrating his absolute power to forgive sins in the way he did, it's how he chose to prove that identity. That's the extraordinary thing he did to demonstrate his extraordinary identity. This is his sword in the stone. And this is what gets to his primary mission, spiritual healing, eternal healing. Healing that's not just for the people of first century Capernaum. It's for each of us today and for every person we encounter in our daily life, no matter how broken, or distant, or hostile to God they might be at that moment. Jesus makes his healing freely available to all who will put their faith in him as Lord and Savior. And it's this healing that's what our our broken and sin-embracing culture desperately needs, and what we need to be in the business of helping people receive. As we saw in today's story, sometimes people need friends to help them get to Jesus and receive that spiritual healing, because... For those of us who already know the Lord, this is a passage that is both informative and challenging. Who's in our life who we need to carry to the feet of Jesus? We can't make the decision to receive Christ for them, but we can certainly make it easier for them to get to him. Now, for others, there may be people here who feel like there's some sin in your past that is so ugly, so heinous, so horrible you can't really ever be forgiven. You may even already be a believer in Christ, but you still feel that you are not clean enough or good enough, and that shame haunts you. It might even be crippling you because you're so burdened by your past that it dominates your thoughts and emotions, and you feel like it really limits your future. Or it may be that you're discouraged today by some ongoing and unsuccessful battle with temptation where you keep falling into sin and failing. But this passage shows us it does not have to be this way. There is no sin so bad that Jesus is unable to forgive it, because the passage says he has authority to forgive sins. It doesn't say that he has authority to forgive some sins or small sins or that other guy's sins but not my sins. It says he has the authority to forgive all sins. He has the authority to forgive your sins and mine, and all we have to do is believe in him as Lord and Savior. Embrace his power to forgive and confess our sins to him and turn away from them. The people of Capernaum were out of their minds in ecstatic amazement at the power and presence of Jesus. They had seen him instantly heal a paralyzed man, but that hadn't even been the main event. They saw him do it as a simple and and almost instantaneous demonstration of his power to forgive sins, a power reserved exclusively for God himself. So in their very midst, God was standing there freely offering spiritual healing to everyone who is willing to come in faith. Well, now it's our turn. As we read this passage, we're encouraged by Jesus' power to heal physical illnesses and suffering but we must not stop there. We can't just read this as some interesting historical story that's unlikely to ever affect us. We need to understand the greater point, that Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord and Savior, is truly God, here to bring everlasting spiritual healing to all who will accept it from him. We need to be more like those people of Capernaum, ecstatic, amazed, out of our minds, Because God himself is seeking us out, forgiving even our most vile sins, and bringing us into his family. Like the people of Capernaum, we need to be amazed and glorifying God. Because this is truly good news. As good for us as it was for them 2,000 years ago. Who then is this? God in the flesh come to bring healing and forgiveness to you and to me. That's amazing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this message. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for the words that have been preserved throughout the centuries that show us just how extraordinary your son is. Lord, we are so appreciative that you sent him into our world to teach, to preach, to live, and ultimately to suffer and take all of our sins onto the cross that we may be forgiven through his death and resurrection. Lord, we thank you that we can turn to him as our Savior, have our sins forgiven, and be with you forever in eternity. Lord, grant anyone here who is needing spiritual healing, give them spiritual healing. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.